Hello, it's Jordan. Before we jump into today's show, it's worth noting that this was recorded over Zoom and there were a few internet connectivity issues. At a couple moments, Chris's voice briefly cuts out. We tried our best to minimize these instances, but we want to thank you for your understanding. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Film Kid Asks, the podcast where I ask questions to working professionals in the film industry from the perspective of someone just getting started. My name is Jordan and today I'm joined by Chris Elsley, a producer from projects like Restaurants on the Edge and It Happened Here. She's also the head of content and development at the Boca Collective. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Chris. Oh, thank you for having me. So you're a Ryerson graduate, which is the school that I'm studying at. What was your experience at film school? This is a good question. Um... When I first got into Ryerson's film school, I think I took an approach that was maybe a lot different from other students. I didn't get into the program right out of high school. I actually was a psych student at Ryerson and I had come from a performing background and realized, what am I doing? I'm a passionate creative. So um, after my first year of Ryerson, I then made the decision, you know what? I'm going to figure out how to go into the film program. This is where I belong. And I remember going and taking courses at the Chang program while speaking to, I'm not sure if he's still there, but it was James Warwick um, and saying, look, we know each other. We had friends and I had friends who were in the program, but I said, how do I get into the day program? This is what I need to do. So I started taking courses that basically matched up with year one. And then by the end of, you know, that first year where everyone else was in the daytime program, I had all of my credits and a a few more having been already in Ryerson's psych program. And long story short, I got into the program. So I think that's part one of how my experience was different. Um, But all in all, I think the big thing that I would take away from it too is just the fact that um, I don't know what it's like right now for Ryerson film students, but the role of the producer was really not well-defined. And I think it's partially because Ryerson really focuses on the auteur with directing or with writers. That's still their core focus or it was in the past. And so that was really the hardest challenge for me was how do I make my mark? These are not students that I was originally um, in school with in that first year. How do we become friends? How do I show them that, look, producers can do more than just production manage? That was my biggest kind of change and jump into uh, Ryerson's landscape. Yeah, no, for sure. It's always interesting to hear how people will kind of find their way into film or stumble into it. So is there any advice that you have for people in film programs on how they can best make use of their time in school? Yes. I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way where you get all of these people coming to you and saying, you know, is it really worth going to Ryerson or to a film school program? And for me, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. I feel so grateful that I had the opportunity to go through a university program, get a Bachelor of Fine Arts for something that I love. On the other hand, you know, you don't necessarily need a BFA to do what we do. Um, In terms of the advice I would give, it's really about networking. And even though you're in school, you should be networking with all of the people in your class. I still work and pull on people from projects, not just from, you know, my year, but other years. We collaborate together. I was one of those people who thought, okay, how do I make the most of being in a film school program? So I worked at the cage where I was learning about all of the equipment. Even though I knew I wanted to produce, I was focusing on learning everything I could. And the biggest thing I would say is also staying really humble because it's very easy, especially in film school, it does get a little cliquey, even if no one wants to admit it, but it does. And so 
my biggest advice is really saying yes to projects. Even if you think they're not going to turn out, what can you learn from saying yes to a project? There were so many that I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I made that. On the other hand, I had so much fun making it and I was still able to engage learning how to negotiate. I mean, there's one project I'm thinking in particular that didn't quite turn out the way anyone hoped. And there were so many people who were like, oh my God, I don't want to work on that. But it's like, I ended up figuring out how to negotiate to get major uh, katana swords that I think Guillermo del Toro had, and I ended up stealing them from him. Um, it was a long story, but <laughs> the point is you never should say no to a project, especially when you're in film school, find a way to make use of that time. That's amazing advice. That's so valuable. And I think good to kind of remind yourself too. So you mentioned this, you have experience performing in theater or you did when you were younger. Do you think that that experience has affected your approach to filmmaking and storytelling? Definitely. I mean, I grew up uh, singing mostly and then performing in musical theater. And I realized, oh my gosh, I am way too shy to ever be in front of the camera or on stage or auditioning. I have so much respect for anyone who does that. Um, but the big thing I did learn was that level of perfection that you're really going for or that level of detail and learning how to tell a very structured story beginning middle and end working with a director i never really worked with too many producers shall we say that's a different kind of world but working with a director and really learning how to tell a story learning how to bookend a story i think even now um the way that i work not just as a producer but a producer who works with a writer or sometimes i'm just a writer or sometimes i'm a director I now have much more confidence in how to work with actors or how to work with documentary subjects to get the story and to get the passion or to get the line delivery. Um, so those are things that when you're working in something like the performing arts, you are taking apart those pieces and really learning how to apply them to a very similar field, just something with a camera in front of it. So you've mentioned a few things now, performing and then of course also working at the cage and knowing the equipment. And I think in a lot of film students heads, at least, uh, producing is kind of removed from the onset experience. How important do you think it is to know all of this stuff? It is the biggest misconception. I think, um, you know, one of the ways I sign off typically is your friendly producer, Chris Elsley. And part of the reason I usually joke about that is there's this misconception that producers are these mean, money-hungry individuals. And I can't tell you how far from the truth that is and how involved I am on projects. And it really depends on the type of producer you're working with. I think the type that scares everyone is a line producer. Line producers are the types of people who are really managing every number in the budget. Not to say I don't do that, but specifically those ones don't necessarily care about the creative. They're all about accounting and making sure you're on budget or under budget or trying to squeeze some dollars for the executive producers or the studios. So then to return to what I was saying at the beginning is by having all of this understanding of, you know, what various pieces of equipment uh, do you on set, what they're used for, how many bodies you need on a set, I'm now able not only to anticipate what a commercial production might need, what a film production might need, what a TV production might need. Now I'm able to budget properly because I have the experience. And I'm not just one of those people who sat quietly in an office going, oh my gosh, you know, I know nothing about what's needed. And why do you need this giant 50 foot techno crane, which is something that I currently need on my set. I now understand it because I understand the vision. And I think that's really important. So yes, it's very important to get involved um, because it it makes you more valuable to the production and to your team. And this really is a team collaborative industry. So you should always get your hands dirty. 
yeah, I mean, I think that's spot on. So kind of going off of that, how would you define the role of a producer? And can you kind of break that down for me? Oh my goodness. So on my Instagram, I think I mentioned a joke, something like a producer does everything. And in Canada, especially, I feel like that is the truth. I am someone who is very involved in choosing stories. I'm very involved in creating budgets. Um, There's a lot of leadership. There's a lot of production management. There's a lot of uh, liaising with clients or with networks or with studios. There's a lot of hiring of crew. So a producer's role can really be a little bit of everything. But I think this is where it's kind of fun to break out the difference between a TV producer, a film producer, and then maybe even a commercial producer. So I'm sure in film school, you've heard of kind of your chain of command, which again, I'm not sure if you guys uh, have also been kind of taught, but it it really came from like military structure. Um, So one of the things in film is when you're looking at that breakdown from top to bottom in terms of importance or in terms of um, where everyone sits in the industry. With film, it's an executive producer, a producer or co-producer, an associate producer, production manager, and then a producer's assistant. In TV, it's an executive producer, series producer, showrunner, producer, co-producer, associate producer, production manager, and producer's assistant. And the real difference there, I would say, is that series producer, showrunner. So in film, I would say that the producer's job is much more focused on maybe finding and securing a script and attaching a director, which a lot of people in film school don't really do. It's not really something that's needed based on the way that it's set up, totally understandable. I would say that you end up becoming much more creative in, sorry, in the TV role, especially because um, you're much more of a writer. I think that surprises a lot of people that in that TV world, you're, you're really managing the whole vision of the show. Not to say you don't in film as well, but I do think that the real key difference for me, at least working in film, has been as a producer, I'm focused on really helping the director's vision come to life. And in TV, I usually am the one bringing that whole vision to life. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Yes. So you do work primarily in television. So what are some of the unique challenges that come with producing in television? Oh, man. What are some of the challenges? I think right now, especially since we're talking about the coronavirus and everything that's going on, um, it's still hard to produce TV shows for networks. I do a lot of travel series, a lot of adventure series. And so... Right now, we're all kind of planning, how do we, how do we make content? Um, before that, I think some of the challenges that you're kind of going into is just the fact that there's a lot of different people that you have to report to, and it's kind of collaborating in a different kind of way than film. Film, again, it feels very linear. Generally speaking, you know, you might have a lot of different writers who are working on the project, but it's one project, but in TV, it's obviously long format, lots of different episodes, so it's really managing all of those different uh, creative entities which can be a real challenge. (laughs) Yes, I can imagine. So how does your role change between different genres and forms of content? Because as I did mention, you do produce obviously in television, but you also are the head of content and development at the Boca Collective. Um, So you wear a lot of hats. So how how does your role change between producing in these different kind of formats? Well, when I'm working on films, I would say that I'm much more involved again in kind of Production management, that's the way it feels. It's much more focused on creating a budget, looking at the creative, breaking it down so that you can kind of build that out. 
um, and kind of being a liaison with our studio execs or executive producers and the director. Sometimes as well, I'll be choosing the scripts. It really depends, but um, that's kind of the main focus when I'm working strictly in film. In TV, I mean, right now it's show running and series producing. So I'm focusing on, let's see, managing a team of writers. I ended up directing the series, so kind of split both roles. Um, and then with commercials, I would say that really it's, again, much more production management and being exceptional with clients. That is the biggest thing in general as a producer is I think it's very easy to get very bitter and jaded and cold and harsh. And I think the real charm with a producer is knowing how to do that really, um, really elegantly. <laughs> Maybe elegantly isn't the best word, but it definitely has to come with grace because otherwise no one's going to want to work with you. Yeah, no, for sure. So I guess following up with that, how do you make sure when you are pitching that your client is feeling comfortable and you have that positive energy or elegant energy or however you want to call it um, and making sure that they are feeling comfortable and happy? I think that the first thing you need to do, and this applies to any industry really, but it, it's been something I've learned to do is not take anything personally in this industry. It's so easy, especially for us as creatives, even if you're a producer and you consider yourself more analytic, you're still a creative. And it's very easy for things in the moment, especially when stress is high or you're on set and you're just freaking out what to do. Calm yourself and listen. Listen to what the client is saying. Listen to what your team is saying. Absorb it. Take a moment and then find your solutions. The biggest part of our industry is really, especially as a producer, is finding solutions to problems. You are making it happen. You are producing the show. And so when I'm working with clients, it's really about having them feel heard. You kind of maybe want to take on the hat of a little bit of a therapist <laughs> because it really does come to client communication. And client communication expands to what we do in the rest of our world too. Um, with film, TV, you're talking and communicating with the network execs or executive producers, and you're just making sure everyone has their voice heard. And that's really what people are, want to know. You're kind of seeing their vision and you're making sure it happens. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's it's something to keep in mind because I do think you put so much of yourself into these projects and it's important to kind of see it from their perspective or from, I guess, a detached perspective um, so that you're able to, you know, kind of remain objective about what's best for the project. No, it's so true because the thing is, um, and this has happened to me, I've been on, let's say, commercial productions in particular, and there have been agency clients who maybe just don't have that same level of experience as even us here on this call as filmmakers. Uh, we know what to expect because we can see the whole creative vision and it's really learning how to show clients how you're going to execute that vision or communicate with them. So really at the base of our industry, if we were to strip everything we do apart, our job is really just about communication and how to do that clearly. Yeah. No, that's great as a reminder. And I think as film students, that's something we can definitely focus on getting better at. So what attracts you to a particular project? Is it the commercial appeal of it? Is it the vision? Is it the themes of the story or the story itself? Is it, you know, the people that are working on it? Good question, Jordan. Oh, this was a hard one when I was looking at your questions. There's so many things. Um, I think 
everyone has those special projects and scripts and movies and TV shows in their head that they just go, oh man, I wish I made that. <laughs> so when I'm reading a script, I guess that's the first thing or a creative idea. Maybe it's not yet a script. It's just a concept. Maybe it's a log line. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really fresh. And I know that sounds cliche, but sometimes it just clicks and it jumps off the page. That's what I'm looking for. That mixed with something that feels really authentic, something that people are really passionate about. Because again, I know it sounds super lame, but the moment that someone else gets really into an idea and it feels really authentic and they're really into it, I immediately connect to it, at least to listen. Um, for me, I think what I always love and I'm always looking for are things that have kind of a nostalgic feel to them. So maybe it's just the aesthetic. I love the 1980s. I love the 1990s. I love period pieces. If there's a way, even if it's in modern kind of lighting or something to kind of pay homage to that, I'm kind of already, you've got my attention. Um, but also I love quirky absurdist comedies and horror films that again are just rooted in reality but maybe there's a level of surrealism to it so there's got to be something that just jumps off the page or you know again teammates from various projects that i've worked with sometimes there's just people that you know are going to bring you something and you're going to love it so it really depends but that's what i feel is really important yeah no i mean it's a hard it's a hard question um but thank you for trying to answer it to the best of your ability and I think what you said about authenticity is true. In a world where so much content is being produced, I think authenticity is really what um, makes a story resonate. So switching gears a little bit, what are your favorite parts about your job? That's also a really hard question to ask in some ways because there's so many things I'm doing right now that I would have one answer a year ago and now it's totally changed because of COVID. My job right now, especially as head of content and development for the Boca Collective, I'm really not just wearing the hat of a producer anymore. I'm also kind of like our CFO and COO. But I'll tell you, one of the things that excites me to my core is the idea of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurialship. I think I'd be able to get that one out at this point. Um, but yeah, entrepreneurialship really excites me. And that's something that I feel as a producer, you're kind of in a way stepping into because you're looking at your projects as a freelancer, as your babies. And um, I love truly the opportunity to look at projects and give other people opportunities. I've had so many PAs who have come onto our projects and some of them are not from Canada. And I love the fact that they're so passionate and I'm able to give them an opportunity and really help them move to the next level of their career. I think that just comes from what I love. I love working with my friends. If I was to say the honest to God truth why I'm working in this industry, it was to be collaborative, to be creative, and to work with my friends. And um, every day is different. So I think working in film and television, you know, if I one day want to travel to outer space and the next day I want to be haunted by a witch, I mean, I can do both. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing industry for that. And I think that was a great answer. So what do you think young filmmakers should know about the market that they're entering? or will be entering soon, I guess. You know, it, it never dawned on me while I was in film school, probably because I had a, a partner at the time who had a full-time job at an office doing development work for major MOWs, so movies of the week. And I just thought, wow, that's great. I want, it, I want a job like that where I'm working in an office and I'm just constantly working and it seems so comfortable. And then I got into the industry and I realized, oh my God, I'm a freelancer. 
it sounds so funny, but that is the first realization everyone has to make is that you are a freelancer, which means you're your own agent and you're having to hustle. Um, so that's the first part I would say. Now that we're in the middle of COVID, I think everyone is going, what is our landscape and what does it look like? There's no doubt it's hard but it's not impossible. And I know that a lot of people would say differently. I'm still hiring people. I'm still doing productions. Um, other companies in Toronto, in Canada, in the US and abroad are still working. It's just more so how do you get your foot in the door? And that's always going to be the question, right? So I think my advice to young filmmakers is one, find a mentor or at least someone you can talk to and, you know, basically get them on the phone, see if you can, ask them for coffee, do all of those typical things that, you know, are cliche and people tell you to do, but it's important because it got me my job and it got, gets everyone else a job too. And the other thing I would say is there are resources out there in Toronto, as an example, maybe not always with film, although I wouldn't say that entirely. So I'm going to give one example of rates because I think that's what everyone who comes out of film school is wondering, how much should I charge for my services? How do I even have an idea of industry standard? So there's an organization called CPAT. Obviously there's union organizations like IATSE. And then there's another resource in particular as well that I can share with you after this. So the name has escaped me, but reading those things, it's basically a collaboration of different people in the industry who have revealed their rights so that you at least have a baseline of what other people in the industry are charging. Now, you as a freelancer have to then decide what is fair. So if on the high end, you know, let's say a producer's assistant or a PA or a sound recordist or a DP, whatever it is, is charging, I don't know, upwards of $2,500 a week for like a very experienced type of individual, Maybe you're not starting off at that high rate. Maybe you're starting off at the lowest rate. Those resources are available for you, so you should try and find them, or you should try and talk to a mentor or someone who can point you in the right direction to find them so that you have a baseline. And from there on in, um, yeah, just start networking. Network like you are hustling so hard to meet that perfect person in your team, because that is the biggest thing that will happen. You will end up getting brought onto jobs that are just reoccurring with the same people. You want to find your film family or your TV family. And that's what's going to uh, help you build a career and really keep going. Yeah, no, that's incredibly valuable advice. And I think that's something that a lot of freelancers struggle with is knowing your worth and trying to figure out where you're at. And of course, comparing yourself to other people. So you work at the Boca Collective, as I mentioned, as, as the head of content and development. Could you talk us through what your role is there, I guess, in a little bit more detail? Of course. So I guess what I was expanding into originally when I was talking about um, being the head of content and development at Boca is a year ago, it would have just meant I was really spearheading developing our slate of projects in film, TV, and branded entertainment. Branded entertainment is something like I just worked on recently. I worked on a series, uh, a web series for Stella Artois called Chef Artois, and it was basically an entertainment series that was food competition with the brand. Anyway, in terms of what I do now, it's no longer just developing and writing these formats. It's now kind of branched into I'm the COO and CFO managing a whole production company because this is my business as well. So that whole job has changed. But typically what I would be doing is really 
coming up with ideas with my two business partners, Rob Bruner, who has directed The Amazing Race Canada for the last seven seasons, Justin Harding, who works on a lot of scripted projects and was one of the showrunners for Restaurants on the Edge. And it's really about sitting in a writer's room, so to speak, and coming up with ideas, getting ready to package them for networks and start sending them out to um, these networks to basically say, are you interested or not? Greenlight us, please give us the money. For sure. So I know you mentioned, obviously, you do quite a bit of pitching, but I'm assuming as someone who is in charge of, you know, development, you also receive pitches. So what kind of differentiates a good pitch from a bad pitch? That's a fun question. Well, I think the first thing I can say is don't send on LinkedIn or in an email your full script and idea because it annoys everybody in the industry. Um, One, it's easy for people to make assumptions that we're going to steal your ideas, which most often is not going to be the case. I mean, definitely for me, that's a no-no, but I'm saying in general, that wouldn't happen. But moreover, we're so busy as producers that to get it, it almost feels disrespectful. So part one in pitching anyone, don't send it unless it's asked or unless you're following the required format of sending in a pitch. The big things I would say is like having something that's really well thought out, really well organized, and it looks flashy. I mean, we're so lucky. Even for myself as a producer, I'm able to find a ton of packages online for produced films and produced TV shows. And so really see what comparables are out there. If you know you're making a horror film or if you know you're making a comedy, can you go and find some comparables to see what has sold? What kind of visuals did they use? How much information did they put down? The biggest thing I want to be able to do looking at an idea is, again, seeing the overall vision and having it well laid out for me. I'm going to teach you something (laughs) that I learned, not just working as an associate producer, you know, in the intermediate stages of development, but even now as a showrunner, no one reads past the first page. Now, I'm not saying that for myself. I truly do. But make sure that first page gives you everything you want them to read because I have found that there's a lot of people in the industry who are very lazy and that's just the honest reality. And it's probably because they are so inundated with scripts, with concepts, with work, with budgets. So if you make that first page come to life, I'm going to keep reading. If it looks well packaged, it makes a huge difference. It makes me continue to flip the pages. That is so good to know. Thank you. So are there any opportunities for different types of content or filmmaking that you think young filmmakers should be thinking about more? Okay. So I think right now our industry is saturated with so much content as we know, but that's not a bad thing. That means that there's a lot of things being greenlit. That means there's a lot of money still being passed around. There's a lot of opportunities. So don't forget that. Um, Where I see a lot of growth right now is in the branded entertainment market, which I had mentioned earlier. And it really excites me because what I'm finding is there are brands who have money, which means that there's an opportunity to make something that's very organic to them. So again, not to go back to other projects I've done, but it's just such a specific thing that stands out in my mind. Stella Artois, that's a beer brand. And we ended up creating this fantastic food competition series directly for them that yes, it does highlight the brand in a really fun way and everything, but it's a competition series as well. And it becomes this great way of opening a door um, to see a fun show And it's brought to you by 
a brand like Stella Artois. So I think that's something that's going to continue to happen. And I think the more we look at even our social media accounts, like we're just getting used to seeing ads everywhere. It's just a new way of seeing content. So that's one avenue. And then I do think short form content, I'm, I'm not sure if everyone's aware of Quibi. That was a really interesting idea that recently just closed down, which I was very disappointed by because I think there was a lot of potential there to see short form content um, that was only available to you on your smartphones. So I think things like that will start to appear more and more. And then also, let's not forget virtual reality and augmented reality is going to become a real thing. I was talking to producers in LA who are just on the verge of something very, very big. I think Facebook recently introduced some kind of eye masks or goggles or glasses that are going to allow that more and more. So I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of virtual reality starts to spawn and create new opportunities to really reimagine um, life on and off screen in a way. Thank you. No, that was a great answer and a really hard question. And I just keep throwing those at you today. Uh, but now I'm going to open it up for a few of my friends to ask questions of their own. Um, I did want to say thank you for coming on to this podcast and letting us all listen. And you have a lot of really great advice. My question for you is, so the Boca Collective, I've noticed, has really amazing branding. And I feel like that's so important today, especially when we're freelancing and a sea of content and a, there's a lot of other people out there who want to do the same thing. Do you have any advice for how to brand ourselves? I really like that question. Um, so first of all, the Boca Collective um, was put together by Rob and Justin, I guess in 2016, they brought me in as a partner. And so we were all freelancers that decided, wow, this team dynamic really works. And so after we finished the Netflix show, we jumped off of the freelance work and really started to build our own company. So my point in saying that is we're still working on the branded part of our company to make it really pop. Um, I'm fully aware how important that is, Natalie. So in terms of a couple of things, I think that it's important for sure to have social media accounts. I know there's some people that don't really want to, but as an example, that's the way people have found me through LinkedIn, through Facebook, not so much Facebook, but Instagram, especially. I don't even post that much to do with filmmaking, but I think that people nowadays want to get to know you. And that's really important. They want to understand you. Um, and that's something that I started to do. I was actually quite shy. I think I should mention that a little. I was very, very shy. I mentioned that I was terribly afraid of stage fright, um, even though I was a professional actor and singer. But I realized in film school, a lot of people didn't really get to know me. Some people did, but um, I was quite quiet and reserved. And social media really gave me a voice that helped me brand myself as a producer. It helped people to see me as quirky and to have fun and to be bold. And so if you're able to kind of show those pieces of yourself online, if that's something you feel comfortable with, you should go for it. I do think that even a resume nowadays, I'm not saying it has to be the most polished, you know, Pinterest purchased item, but I like it when people stand out with their own unique look and it says, here I am, I've really thought about myself and this is what I'm putting forward. So, you know, come up with things that really mean a lot to you at your core values, um, what you love. If you're kind of a whimsical producer, director, writer, add a little bit of that flavor and don't be afraid to show your personality. We are creatives. I feel like people expect that of us even more because we're creative. So don't let some of the older people in this industry or um, who don't work in film and TV 
kind of make you shy away from wanting to show a piece of your personality. You go for it. Thank you so much. I have a question. So is there something that you weren't expecting to kind of have to take responsibility over or a part of your job that you weren't expecting to have to do um, when you started working in the industry? Yes, directing. <laughs> I, I think that when I went through Ryerson, I was completely focused on being this producer who was most likely going to sit in the back seat and, you know, just focus on production managing and coming up with the ideas and kind of being the silent force. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, I have to, I have to direct this? What? That really shocked me. And I, I think that anyone who is in film school, even if you're wanting to go into production design, or maybe you're like, I want to be an editor, don't be surprised if the world opens up to you in a way that you just do not expect. And that's where film school, again, for me, really made a huge difference because I was lucky enough to work with really awesome directors at Ryerson who I honestly learned so much from just watching the way they did things. Don't be afraid to just witness people and learn from them right now, even if you are taking the back seat. Um, I was shocked when I ended up having to direct. And then I was shocked how much I knew just from watching people on set. So no, I didn't get all of that experience at Ryerson. I probably would have been too shy to, but by the time I got into the industry, I really knew more than I was expecting. And that was a pretty awesome experience. Amazing. So we're going to move on now. I did ask you to prepare five film recommendations, as I do with everyone on this show. Uh, so could you share what those are and why you chose them? Jordan, this is the hardest question. <laughs> Asking whatever. me for just five films? That's what everyone always says. <laughs> okay, so I really did some soul searching today in terms of what my favorite films were, my top five picks. And I decided I can't give you my top five favorites. There's too many, but I'm going to speak from things that are currently in my heart. <laughs> so the first film, and it, it is probably my favorite film, is Pan's Labyrinth, directed by Guillermo del Toro. I love everything about this film. Um, I love the story behind it. I love that it helps to make sense of a young girl's childhood and trauma. And it's really just a beautiful testament to the power of imagination and what people will go through to, again, make sense of a trauma and something that's really frightening. So the fact that it is full of these beautiful creatures and this wondrous world that's brought to life with so many different people on set that really excites me. And there's so much to learn from it. I mean, to me, Guillermo del Toro is truly an auteur that um, I can't stop watching just because everything you see on screen is so motivated. And that's what draws me to all of his films. I love the fact that very similar to a real literary piece of art, you're dissecting more than just a commercial storyline everything is really hand chosen and curated. I think that's so cool to watch. So that's my number one pick. Um, the second film that I really love, and I know that it's not that I only produce horror films, everyone, but I do love them. And so I really enjoyed 2015's The Witch. Um, so that was directed by Robert Eggers. And I think what's so cool about that particular film is just the fact that it is based in a completely different century. It's pretty sparse on dialogue. 
again, it's the world and the atmosphere that's created. It's the very small uh, cast of characters. And the fact that probably I do come from a theatrical background and you have so few characters on screen and they all really lead the performance till by the end, you're really left with this powerful young woman who just steals the show. So I think that is a, a really cool film. Let's see, what's my next one on my list? Drive. I think it's such a cool film. Um, again, this one was directed by Nicholas Winding Remp. I hope I'm saying his name right, but if not, Drive is a, it's just such a cool film. It's so rock and roll. And when I look at films that I wanna direct, I love everything about this character. Um, particularly the fact that this film is just so vibrant. It's shot in all of these amazing colors. The cinematic journey for me is just amazing. And talk about an incredible soundtrack. I think that's something that as film students we can all take away is the power of music. I think that if that movie didn't have the same score um, and soundtrack, it just wouldn't be the same film. So I freaking love that movie. Yeah, I saw someone dub no, it as a um, as a neon noir, which I thought was a really interesting kind of category. Because yeah, it's it's so visually striking, and the soundtrack is just phenomenal in that film. And I love that you don't even know the protagonist's name. I don't think at any point, and yet you feel so connected um, with every thought that goes through his head. It's just beautifully done. And all of the reactions that you're seeing, you're so right. I forgot about that. You don't even learn the characters, the, the protagonist's uh, full name or real name at all. And again, it's just the power of directing, you know, performers and um, having a great script that, oh, can you imagine? I should really read it. We should all read it. That script, I am so curious to see how it jumps off the page because you just know that there's so much detail in there. So it would be fun to look at that movie while dissecting the script. I'm going to do that this weekend, next weekend, whenever. <laughs> um, I think we're on my fourth pick, which I would have to say is another Ryan Gosling movie, but very different from everything I've chosen. Um, and that's Crazy Stupid Love. I love this movie because this is such a great commercial choice. Great casting, great script, funny, sweet, and there's not a lot of romantic comedies too that I'm really into. I feel like the 90s, that was a time where all of these incredible fun movies were being produced and this was the first one that kind of took me back and it had great production value. And again, the story is just so clear and well thought out. Um, this one was directed by Glenn Ficarra and John Requa. So I'm not sure if everyone knows, but I guess it was co-directed, which I think is really cool. And yeah, it's just such a great film in general. And I think that when I'm looking at it from a commercial standpoint, that's a perfect film. So that would be my fourth choice. And then I was not going to leave this conversation without choosing a Canadian film. Um, and I really truly mean this from the bottom of my heart. Firecrackers by Jasmine Mazafari is a film that I wish I made and produced. I worked on the short actually as their production manager years ago, but I believe this is a perfect Canadian film. And the reason I feel that way is I grew up in a small town or a small town mentality, it was Niagara Falls. And those characters sprang to life for me, those two young girls. I just felt that entire film. And when I think of a strong Canadian voice, I think of Jasmine Mazafari, and I think of the colors of that film. I think of the two characters who are going through this uh, coming of age journey together. And that to me is Canada. And that to me is uh, the future of our Canadian vision. I think that's a really awesome place to achieve greatness. Go Jasmine. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Chris. It was honestly such a pleasure having you on and you answered some really tricky questions. And thanks to all of those of you who uh, did come on and ask questions as well. But that is all for this episode of Film Kid Asks. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram or join our Facebook group. New episodes come out every Saturday.